Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 6 as we are continuing our exposition of this wonderful gospel. Our text this morning is verses 12 through 19. Luke 6, 12 through 19. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, you are gracious, Lord. Lord, as Jesus was here on earth, he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we pray, O God, sanctify your people. Make us holy as you are holy. Help us, Father God, to understand, to see the plan and the purpose of redemption unfold again before us. Help us, Father God, to look to, to behold, to imitate Christ, who is our Savior, who is the one who is worthy and who makes us worthy through union with him. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This has probably happened to any, any and all of us on any given day. As we go about our normal duties, as we try to do normal things, we, we always come across something that doesn't quite work right, right? I mean, remember that little moment of frustration when you need to write something down and you grab a pen and, and you try to write and it's out of ink and you throw it across the room or you try to do the same on a marker board and the marker's dry. Or maybe you, you're, you're trying to cut something with a knife in your kitchen with an absolutely dull knife that's just, you know, dangerous. It won't even slice a tomato for you. Maybe you've tried to nail something to a crumbling wall. Maybe you've tried to see in the dark with a flashlight whose batteries were almost dead. Maybe you've tried to cut cloth with dull scissors when little things like that happen, it can frustrate us. It can annoy us. It can cause us just to give up altogether, whatever little task we were doing. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can get that way with people too, can't we? There are little ways that people can annoy us or people can fall short of our expectations or the frailties and foibles of people can frustrate us. They can make us angry. They can make us want to give up. 
And now think for a moment that not only is it that way sometimes with other people that we have to work with, maybe sometimes people feel that way about us. And as you think about that, brothers and sisters, I would also bid you to consider how a sovereign God works perfectly through deeply flawed human beings to accomplish his purpose and plan. Isn't that good news for all of us this morning? In our text this morning, we have Jesus selecting 12 men who will be his apostles. And we are going to see that by human standards, they are ordinary flawed individuals. By the world's definition, they are nothing more than fools. And yet, 11 of these men will be the pillars of the New Testament church. And according to Revelation 21, 14, their names will be engraved on the 12 foundation stones on the wall to the holy city in heaven. This was the destiny that God had for these men. But first, they would have to go through poverty, rejection, sorrow, loss, and persecution. Like their Lord, the path to glory would take them through the valley of suffering. And it all begins here. That is what we get to explore this morning as we see Luke record for us the selection of the 12 apostles. And so let's go ahead and walk through this, ta- this text this morning. The first thing we want to consider is Christ's faithfulness to pray. Christ's faithfulness to pray. We look there at verse 12 and it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. We want to understand that by this point in his ministry, Jesus had quite a number of followers. But as part of his mission to complete the covenant of redemption, he had determined to appoint 12 messengers or apostles whom he would directly mentor himself to continue the the ministry of the gospel after his return to the Father. On the night before setting these 12 men apart, he went up to the mountain to pray and he continued in prayer all night long. This means, brothers and sisters, that he prayed fervently, he prayed persistently, he prayed dependently upon and up, he prayed dependently to his father, and the father answered him. In fact, if we go later in the Gospels, in John 17, 6, Jesus acknowledged again in prayer that God gave him the apostles and that they had kept his word. Even the picking of Judas was not going to be a mistake because as we see a few verses later in John 17, 12, Jesus says, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now the way that Jesus entered into prayer in preparation for calling his disciples proves the priority of this means of grace. Our Savior has flung open the doors to the throne room for us. He is the one who has not only imputed to us the righteousness which makes us welcome in the presence of our holy God, he is also the one who ever lives and breathes to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. So both by his example and by his command that is given to us in Scripture to pray, Jesus has called us to the same means of grace. 
He bids us to pray to our Father who is in secret, and our Father who sees in secret will reward us. He tells us to pray that we may not enter into temptation. He tells us to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And he says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. We are called to pray, brothers and sisters, but I want us to understand it is not merely that we follow Jesus into prayer. It's not merely that we are commanded by law to pray. It's that in Jesus, by virtue of our union with him, we join him in prayer. He is always making intercession. He is always laboring advocating, mediating for us before the throne of God above. It is Jesus who gives us right and secure standing in God's sight. It is Jesus who leads the way, brothers and sisters. It is Jesus who always bids us to come boldly into his presence, knowing that even the sins we need to confess to him are covered by his blood as we have believed in him. This is our joy and privilege, brothers and sisters. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about prayer, said, The ultimate test of my understanding of the scriptural teaching is the amount of time I spend in prayer. As theology is ultimately the knowledge of God, the more theology I know, the more it should drive me to seek to know God. Not to know about Him, but to know Him. The whole object of salvation is to bring me to knowledge of God. And if all my knowledge does not lead me to prayer, there is something wrong somewhere. I pray, brothers and sisters, that even as we hear the words of that great preacher, that we would be encouraged again in our prayer lives. As I said, it is Jesus himself who secured us access to the throne of grace. There God has promised to be our help in our every time of need. Every day we struggle with various things, all of us. We struggle with our sins, our, our anger, our, our lust, our apathy, our materialism. We struggle with trusting in Him in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of, of efforts that we seem to give so much but see no fruit of. We are invited always to His presence to rest in Him, to trust in Him, to know Him. To find our comfort in him, brothers and sisters. Let us take hold of that privilege that Christ has secured for us by his blood. That takes us then into my second point, which is Christ's faithfulness to choose. First we see his faithfulness to pray. Then we see his faithfulness to choose based on what the Father has confirmed to him in prayer. And following that, Luke then names for us 12 men who would compose Jesus' band of disciples for the next three years. First is Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. He and his brother Andrew were fishermen from the town of Bethsaida along the Sea of Galilee. And depending upon how you read John 1, 35 through 42, Peter might also have been something of a disciple of John the Baptist before becoming a disciple of Christ. We're not certain of that, though. But they later moved to Capernaum. And it's in his home, in Peter's home, where Jesus stayed when he was in Galilee. One commentator regarding the Apostle Peter said, Jesus spent more time with Peter than with any of the others, partly because Peter was constantly at the Lord's side. 
He was never far from Jesus and was continually asking him questions, giving advice, and even giving commands. Apart from that of Jesus, no name is mentioned more often in the New Testament than Peter's. No other person speaks as often or is spoken to as often. No disciple was reproved as often or as severely as Peter, and only he was presumptuous enough to reprove the Lord. No other disciple so boldly confessed Christ or so boldly denied him. No other disciple was so praised and blessed by Jesus, and yet no other did he call Satan. Through all these experiences, brothers and sisters, Peter was groomed and grown by Christ to become the chief preacher and pillar of the early church. Peter is the one who preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He was the first to proclaim the faith before the Sanhedrin. He presided over the first case of church discipline with, uh, uh, with two, two members that were killed in the book of Acts. He was also the first apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And according to the apostle Paul, Peter's wife traveled with him in ministry. They were known to travel all over planting and strengthening churches. And they eventually died together. According to the early church father Eusebius, Peter and his wife were both executed for their faith. Peter was first made to watch the crucifixion of his wife. He stood at the foot of his wife's cross, weeping and gently he kept repeating to her, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And after she died, he pleaded with the Romans to be crucified upside down because he felt that he was unworthy to die the same way his Lord died. That was Peter. Then there was Andrew, Peter's fisherman brother. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Andrew is only mentioned in the list of the disciples. So most of what we know of him comes from John. In John 1, he was a disciple of John the Baptist who left to follow Jesus and then took him straight to Peter. In John 6, he brings the little boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus to feed the multitude. And in John 12, he brought some Greeks to Jesus to meet him. Andrew was a humble man, always laboring in the background to bring others to Christ. And his life continued that way after Christ ascended back to the Father. Church tradition contends that Andrew led the wife of a provincial governor to Christ. And when she refused to recant, the governor had him crucified on an X-shaped cross in Achaia. He reportedly, from that X-shaped cross, he reportedly preached to his persecutors until he died. Then there are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also referred to as the sons of thunder. These two were also fishermen in Galilee. James was likely the older of the two brothers and was a man of some ambition and zeal. In Luke 9, we are told that James and John wanted to call down fire on Samaria because they would not allow Jesus to lodge there on his way to Jerusalem. He must have been a strong leader in the church in Jerusalem because Herod had him arrested even before Peter. James is the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. Tradition says that when James was about to be beheaded, the Roman soldier who had been guarding him was so impressed by his courage and spirit that he begged James's forgiveness, publicly professed Christ, and was beheaded alongside of him. John was the disciple of love and Peter's close companion in ministry in the beginning of the book of Acts. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. And in his writings, he used some form of the word love 80 different times and the word for witness over 70 times. His Gospel represents Christ to us in all of his eternal majesty as the second person of the Godhead. 
Tradition once again tells us that John honored the responsibility to care for Mary, the mother of Jesus, and did not leave Jerusalem until she had died. And then after that, he faithfully preached the gospel outside of Jerusalem. He had a preaching ministry that lasted over 60 years, and he was finally banished to the small island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, where he died about A.D. 98. Then the text says we have Philip from Bethsaida, the same town where Peter and Andrew were raised. He was specifically called by Christ to follow Philip then brought Nathanael to Christ. In the Gospels, Philip seems to be a man of very practical and analytical thinking who struggled to believe in miracles. He was slow to trust and slow to understand, and yet he seized upon Christ by the Lord's grace. And he too was sent by Christ. He was transformed by the Spirit, became an affer- became, becoming a fervent evangelist. Tradition holds that he was martyred for Christ at the Hierapolis. He was reportedly stripped naked, hung upside down by his feet, and pierced with stakes in his thighs and ankles, left to bleed to death for preaching the gospel. Then there's Bartholomew. In the gospel of John, he is also referred to as Nathaniel. He was a close friend of Philip because the two of them are always paired together in the New Testament. He was from Cana of Galilee, and like Philip, he was a student of the scriptures. We have only one account of him in John 1 where Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. He was a Jew that was true of heart, skeptical, but honored in the eyes of Christ. There is never any record of him misunderstanding or arguing for position among the the disciples. Regarding the end of his life, one report says that he preached all over the Middle East and Northern Africa and was finally martyred in Africa by being flayed alive and then beheaded. Then there's Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax gatherer. As soon as Matthew was called and saved by Christ, he he held a dinner to introduce his fellow sinners to Jesus. He was deeply burdened for his fellow Jews, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew specifically to a Jewish audience. He quoted more Old Testament scripture in his Gospel than the other three Gospel writers combined. Like the others, Matthew was also martyred. He was slain with a sword in the distant city of Ethiopia for preaching the Gospel. Thomas is named in the list, but what we know from narr- comes from narratives principally in the book of John, John 11, 14 and 20. Thomas was a realist, perhaps even a pessimist, but he was still a very committed disciple. Thomas is the disciple that really gets a bad rap. He is remembered as doubting Thomas. But it's interesting to consider that literally none of the disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead until they saw him. They didn't believe the women who came from the tomb. They didn't believe the disciples who told them about it on the road to Demaeus. And even when Jesus appeared among them, He had to prove himself to them. So Thomas was no different than the others. Thomas, or excuse me, the the Apostle John uses Thomas's confession as a fitting crescendo to the conclusion of his gospel as we have Thomas confessing that Jesus is the Lord God. Tradition tells us that Thomas went as far as India preaching the gospel and there he died by being impaled by a spear. For preaching the truth. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, also referred to as James the Less in Mark 15:40, which could mean that he was smaller in stature or younger in age. Once again, there is no story involving James the Less. We have no record of a single word he spoke or of a single thing he did. He was a man who was undistinguished among his peers. 
Yet he was a man given over to the same extraordinary mission as the other men. The early church fathers claimed that he preached in Persia, where modern-day Iran is located, and that he was crucified there as a martyr for the gospel. Then there's Simon, who is called the Zealot. The Zealots were a radical party of nationalistic Jews who were determined to end the Roman occupation of Israel by force. He would have been a man of great passion and devotion, the most likely to want Jesus to assume the role of an earthly warrior, of an earthly warrior king. And yet nothing negative is ever recorded of this man. His zeal for Christ must have led him to lay aside his zeal for national Israel. One record of Simeon contends that he was martyred in Persia as well by crucifixion and then hacked into pieces afterwards. There's Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. He is mentioned only in John 14 where he was confused about how Jesus was going to reveal and disclose himself to the world. Tradition tells us that he went into Syria, where he exercised the gift of healing as he preached the gospel. Hundreds were healed, including the king of Syria, who subsequently trusted in Christ. His conversion is said to have thrown the country into such turmoil that the king's own unsaved nephew had Thaddeus beaten to death with a club. Finally, there is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means man of Kerioth, which is a small town about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Judas spent three years watching and learning and participating in spreading the kingdom message and in displaying kingdom power. The evidence and authority of deity was looking him in the face every single day, and yet he chose the path of treachery. For 30 pieces of silver, which was not an, a large sum, but for 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. When he saw Jesus condemned, he tried to give the money back, but it was too late. He hung himself, and after he was dead, even the tree branch he used broke, and his body fell and burst open in a field. His betrayal was foretold, going all the way back to prophecies made by David. And ultimately, Judas's choice to betray Jesus was also God's perfectly sovereign plan of redemption being brought to fruition, even through the sin of man. Now, brothers and sisters, why have I taken so much time to walk through this list telling you a little bit about each one of these men? Why? Well, all of these men were lowly. A couple of them were obscure. A couple of them were even despised. These men were not well connected. They were not well funded. They were not well educated. There was nothing about these men to set them apart from your average blue-collar Israelite. And this is where I would have us understand, brothers and sisters, that what made them special was not their credentials. It was their calling. It was the call of Christ that made them special. The calling of Christ makes all the difference. The calling of Christ transforms the weak and deficient into faithful vessels of gospel power. Jesus would later say to them in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Brothers and sisters, as we look at these men, these frail, foibled, faultful men, gives us hope, doesn't it? You may think of yourself as weak, prone to selfishness or apathy, continually struggling with the same sin over and over again. 
As a result, you may think that you're unworthy, that you are a reject in the kingdom of God, that God will use other Christians, better Christians, to accomplish his work. You just get to ride the bench. But remember this, brothers and sisters. Christ knows what it is to be rejected. Indeed, he was the stone the builders rejected, which became the chief cornerstone. And the good news for every one of us is that he chooses the foolish things of the world to display his gospel power. Christ chooses the foolish things of the world to magnify his name. And he has chosen you if you are in Christ this day. By his divine call and the power of his spirit, he transforms you. He is transforming. And so, brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to doubt yourself, when you are tempted to think that, that you are nothing in the economy of God, when you are tempted to think that you have somehow disqualified yourself from service to the kingdom, I would have you remember that the power of Christ is at work even in you. You are not rejected in His sight. Indeed, you have been made acceptable because of Christ. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is, weak, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, it is good to have a humble opinion of ourselves. But it is never right, brothers and sisters, to think of ourselves as worthless or to think of ourselves as rejects. We have a God who specializes in redeeming the sinful, in redeeming the broken, in redeeming the hopeless and the lost and the rejected, in redeeming us all and making each of us marvelous parts of the work that he is doing even now for the glory of his name. And he's doing it so that all the glory goes to the Lord, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We learn that from Christ's own disciples. Know that about yourself as his disciples. That takes us to the final thing we see in this text, which is Christ's faithfulness to serve. After choosing the 12, it says there in verse 17 of our text that he came down with them and stood in a level place. And there was a great crowd of people awaiting him. So after selecting the 12, he came down the mountain to a plain, and there was a crowd waiting for him, composed of many of his wider band of disciples, as well as people from all over the region, Judea, Jerusalem, Tyr, Sidon, north, south, east, and west. People came to hear him teach with authority. They came to be healed of their sicknesses and diseases. Those who were possessed by demons were cured by him, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus was undoing the curse of sin with his ministry, with every healing. 
He was demonstrating his power over evil with every exorcism. He was proving by the display of his power among his people that he was the Christ. And now these 12 men, these 12 men had a front row seat to Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus had come and set them apart to himself And so their ministry training was now stepping up to the next level. He had come as the suffering servant, and now their lives would be congruent to his in that path of suffering. And these disciples would have a distinct privilege of being mentored by the Lord. They would eat with him, travel with him, sleep near him, listen to almost every conversation, and yet never see him commit even one sin. They would see firsthand his compassion for the outcast and the poor. They would soak in his teaching about the kingdom. They would hear his rebuke of their hard-hearted religious leaders. They would watch him give himself over to exhaustion in glad service to his father's plan of redemption. And then they would watch him be arrested. They would watch him be crucified. They would watch him die. And then they would see him in the resurrection again. And it is that death and resurrection of Christ that ultimately would transform them, brothers and sisters. It would shape them into his ambassadors. And after Christ ascended, it is they who would go forth preaching the good news. It was they who would go forth healing the sick. It was they who would go forth loving the outcast, planning the churches, fighting false teachers, and dying as hated men. Did you notice that? Every single one of the disciples died a martyr's death. Every single one. And they did it gladly. That is the life of disciple, brothers and sisters. And if you believe in Christ, it's your life. Christ is leading the way in this. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many We are privileged to see and to be part of the work of Christ as his disciples. We need only, brothers and sisters, look around and see the gospel opportunities that surround us every single day. Do not allow those feelings of of failure and those feelings of, of doubt and those feelings of unworthiness to take you out of the game. Brother, sister, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are not on the bench He has put you in. He is leading the way. And it is our joy to to join Him in serving and giving our lives. Brothers and sisters, every day around us, we have the joyful opportunity to share the good news. Every day, we have the opportunity to take up our work, to take up our parenting, to take up, you know, being in marriage or being in relationship with others, co-workers, classmates. We have the opportunity every day to serve, every day to give glory and honor and praise to his name. Every day we have the ability to help others and serve others out of the resources that Christ has entrusted to us. May we do so with joy, brothers and sisters. 
the very joy of Christ in these things. Even our activities and ministries here at church are an opportunity for us to apply our theology of Christ. As we look forward, and Lord willing, in, in a couple weeks, as things continue to open up, we'll, we'll be able to be back in our Sunday school classes. We hope on April 11th. We already have a disciple now that's coming up this weekend. Had to be a little different this year, but what a great opportunity again for service and ministry among our young people. By God's grace, if, if the Lord allows it, we're making plans for, for what our vacation Bible school is looking like and what our summer camps are going to look like. We're, we're already looking back at emphases we're going to get into in Sunday school. We're looking at starting our Who's Your One campaign where each of us look at our own lives and see who we can identify to pray for and, and to endeavor to share the gospel with in the coming months. We're looking again at opportunities within our own community and here within our own country to follow through on our vision in serving the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. We still have the possibility of a, of a mission trip this summer to Ecuador that we hope will come to fruition. There's still a great ministry of, of foster care and adoption that is going on in our body. And we need prayer and supporters to come around those families who have given themselves to that ministry. There's so many different opportunities, brothers and sisters, to serve. So many different opportunities to know the joy of Christ in magnifying his name through what he has entrusted to us in life and in resource. I read again, brothers and sisters, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ leads the way, brothers and sisters. Christ has led the way in our redemption, laying down his life, dying on the cross for sin, rising from the grave. Christ has led the way in ministry. Christ has led the way in calling and setting apart gifts to his church, in calling and setting apart you. May we go forth as faithful disciples. None of us are meant to ride the bench however we may feel about ourselves. All of us are called to that privilege of service to our almighty king. Let us not be kept back from that by earthly concern. And if you are within the sound of my voice this morning and perhaps you're realizing for the first time that you are not in Christ, I would want you to understand this very day his call may be sounding forth to you. Jesus has died on the cross in the place of sinners and Jesus has risen from the grave defeating death so that all who trust in him can be forgiven of their sins and know the promise of eternal life. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you have heard this sermon this morning and perhaps realized your own need of salvation, come this very day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The way has been made open to you by Christ the Lord. Walk in the way. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Know his salvation. I'm going to close this in prayer and then we will move to the table, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Father God, you are such a good and faithful God. And what a privilege, Lord. What an honor 
to see your perfect work through imperfect men. This is a reminder to us all, Lord, of your work of making disciples. And so, Jesus, we pray, continue to make us faithful disciples. May we draw near to you. May we love you. May we follow you, knowing that you have gone before. You prepare the way. You have called us. It is you who gifts us. It is you who empowers us and strengthens us for the task so that we may have the joy and you may have all the glory. Christ our Lord. Glorify your name through your people, Father. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.